1 Corinthians 15.50. 1 Corinthians 15.50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Good evening and welcome again to our worship service. We're grateful for your presence. We appreciate Tyler leading us in these hymns tonight, and we're very thankful for your presence. As always, if you're visiting, we invite you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We do want to encourage those who might be looking for a church home to consider the work here. It would be an honor for us if you would consider becoming a part of this congregation, joining hands with us as we strive to make known New Testament Christianity in this community. We're going to be looking tonight at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Our study tonight is going to center around the theme, the resurrection of the dead. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 26 that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is a common foe to those of us who live on planet earth. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, after this cometh the judgment in Hebrews 9 at verse 27. Job reminds us that man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. James, he indicates that life is like a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Thankfully, Jesus Christ destroyed him who has the power of death, that being the devil, according to Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 14. And so when we place a loved one in the heart of the earth, we have the assurance that one day the Lord will come, and when he comes, the dead will be resurrected. I have had the privilege and the opportunity to perform countless numbers of funerals. And one of the things that I typically try to do when we get to the cemetery is read a passage of Scripture that ends with a note of encouragement, particularly about the resurrection from the dead. Because I want people to know that death is not the end. And even though we place the mortal remains of a loved one in the earth, that that is not the end. As Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And so let's talk for just a moment about the resurrection of the dead. The first thing I want to call your, your attention to has to do with an explanation. And what Paul is going to do in chapter 15 is explain the resurrection. And then there is an exhortation in view of the resurrection. When we talk about chapter 15, of course, this is one of Paul's great chapters or one of uh, the great chapters in the writings of Paul because here he verifies the resurrection of Jesus. And ultimately, without the resurrection, Christianity would be a meaningless religion. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 at verse 4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead in Romans 1 at verse 4. And so the resurrection of Christ is pivotal in relationship to Christianity. And in chapter 15, Paul sets forth a number of people that had the opportunity 
to witness the resurrected Christ. And Jesus spent some 40 days on earth following his resurrection from the dead. And people were able to examine him, to see firsthand men like Thomas, who examined the physical evidence before him. And he said, my Lord and my God. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul sums it up by saying that if Christ has not been risen from the dead, then our faith is vain, our preaching is vain, and ultimately we are still in sin. And then later on in the chapter, he goes on to talk about the resurrection of the physical body. That is the body that you and I inhabit here on planet earth. The body that was framed from the dust of the earth, as Moses said in Genesis chapter 1. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon pictures the demise, the, the disintegration of the human body as it goes through this aging process. None of us are immune to the aging process. And so in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, he said that when death occurs, the body returns to the earth from whence it was taken, from, to the dust, literally, and the spirit to God who gave it life. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's going to talk about the death of the human body and ultimately the resurrection of that body. And so the first thing I want you to, to note with me as we talk about his explanation of the resurrection is that it is a reality. You and I, we need to live in anticipation or expectation of the resurrection. Note, if you would, what Paul says in verse 52. He said, the trumpet will sound. And he said, when that trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. We're not talking about some fantasy here. We're not talking about something that is merely fiction, some tall tale, but rather the resurrection of the body is a reality. And Paul documents that. Think for a moment about what Jesus said during his earthly ministry. We noted a moment ago from John chapter 11 when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, back in chapter 5 in verses 28 and 29, Jesus said, Marvel not for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. He said, Those who have done good shall come forth to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation or condemnation. Jesus here is pointing to that last day, that is, when he will appear, when he will come. And when he comes, he said, the dead will be raised. Well, who's going to be raised? According to the Lord, both the righteous and the unrighteous. When will that occur? Well, it's going to occur when he comes. And so we talk about the expectation of the resurrection. And then also over in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, John here is writing the last book in the New Testament. And in chapter 20, he sees God the Father sitting upon a throne. And he said, I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before God, standing before the throne. He said the books were opened. The books he's alluding to are both the Old and the New Testaments. Those are the books that people will be judged by according to the dispensation of time in which they lived. And he said another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then he goes on to say that the dead shall be judged according to their works. All right. And then he said the sea gave up the dead in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead in it. So when Jesus comes, what's going to happen? Well, the dead will be raised. All right. What about the events 
of the resurrection. When we talk about the events that relate to the resurrection of Christ, what you and I need to understand is that all of this will occur at the second coming of Jesus. Now somebody might ask the question, when is Jesus come? coming? I heard on television today, they've made a movie and some today are pinpointing the year 2012. I can promise you that there is no one on planet earth that knows when the Lord is coming. And these people today, whether they be people in Hollywood or whomever, that have the idea that they can ascertain the day, the month, the year that Jesus is coming, they are wrong. They don't know when the Lord is coming. How do I know that? Because Jesus said, of that day and hour knoweth no man, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. God the Father knows when Jesus is coming. Is it not somewhat presumptuous on the part of mankind to believe that he has the answer to when the Son of God is coming? I'll tell you when Jesus is coming. He said he will come as a thief in the night, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. When do thieves come? When you least expect it. These people that have the idea that they know when Jesus is coming obviously have not read the New Testament because the Bible plainly states that no one knows when he's coming. But the Bible does say that Jesus will come. Well, what's going to happen when he comes? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul speaks of the second coming of Jesus. Now, Peter said he's going to come as a thief in the night. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, relative to his coming again, that people need to live in a state of readiness. He said, watch. Why? Because you don't know at what hour the Son of Man is coming. Well, he's coming. Well, when is he coming? Well, we don't know. But what about the events surrounding his coming? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul said that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and then he said, the dead shall be raised. All right, now, having said that, let's look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, the trumpet will sound, verse 52. When that trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Have you ever heard the voice of an archangel? I don't know of anybody that has. But I, I do believe that based on what Scripture teaches, that all of us will one day hear the voice of the archangel. Not only that, but we will hear the trumpet of God. When Jesus comes, it will be both audible and visible. Because John said in Revelation chapter 1, every eye shall see him. And so we will hear about the second coming of Christ. That is, it will be audible and it will be visible. We will see the Son of God as He descends from heaven. And so Paul said, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, having said that, let's think, let's think about what Paul is saying here, backing up in verse 50. This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That word moment there is an interesting term. It's the word from which we get our, our word, Adam. And it carries with it the idea of that which cannot be divided. 
And what, what Paul is saying here is that when the second coming of Christ occurs, it will happen in a split second. Faster than you and I can imagine. It's going to happen just like that. And so that's what he's saying here in verse 51. That the Lord himself will come, will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So, Jesus is coming. When he comes, the dead will be raised. Paul uses a figure here, the word sleep, to describe those who are sleeping in the cemetery. The body is what sleeps in the cemetery. If you were to look at uh, the remains of a dead person, that is a loved one, friend, family member, whomever, it appears that that person is what? Well, it, it looks like they're asleep. Well, the body is what sleeps in the cemetery. The spirit, however, has returned to God and is in that realm known as Hades. There are two compartments in Hades. The first is paradise or Abraham's bosom. You remember in Luke chapter 23 at verse 43 when one of the thieves hanging on the cross said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me where? In paradise. That's the abode of the righteous. It's called Abraham's bosom. On the other hand, those who are unrighteous, their spirit, their soul, resides in a place called Tartarus, according to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 at verse 4. And he talks about the angels that sinned, how they were cast down to this realm known as Tartarus. It's spelled T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S. That's the realm of the unrighteous, the abode of the ungodly. Well, that's, that's where the spirit resides at death. However, when Jesus comes the body is going to be raised. And that body that is raised will be reunited with what? With that spirit or with that soul, that inward part of us. Now somebody is bound to ask the question, what then is the body going to look like? Well, here's my answer. I do not know. And I say that with all sincerity. Look again at what Paul said in verse 50. This I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption. I do not know what the physical body that is raised from the dead, I do not know what that body is going to look like. I know that this body right now is, is described by Paul as being corruptible, and it will put on incorruption. It is mortal, and it will put on immortality. Now you can read over in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul talks about in verse 20, how our citizenship is in heaven, whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said he will change our vile bodies. It will be conformed like unto his glorious body, whereby he is able to subdue all things, even to himself. Our body will be like the Lord, but what that body looks like, I do not know. And it would be pure speculation to even suggest such. I know this, Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 29, 29, the secret things belong to God. I do not know what the physical body will look like, but I know this, it will be raised from the grave. And so going on, Paul said this corruptible must put on incorruption, verse 53. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And so now let's think for just a moment about this exhortation delivered by Paul in view of the resurrection. 
And the first thing I want to call your attention to is the word rejoice. You and I need to celebrate. We need to give thanks to God in heaven for the resurrection. And one of the things that, that Paul points out here is that when Jesus comes and the body is resurrected, that death will be swallowed up in victory. Now go back again and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26. Paul said there, the last enemy that will be destroyed is what? It's death. Death has been a common foe to the human family since the days of Adam and Eve. As a matter of fact, death made its entrance into the world when Adam and Eve succumbed to temptation in the Garden of Eden. God had said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. I believe that death made its entrance into the world when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. That would be both physical and spiritual death. In Romans chapter 5 at verse 12, Paul said, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And then he goes on to say, Death is passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what you and I need to take from this. When we talk about the fact that we ought to rejoice that Jesus will one day come and the body will be resurrected. We ought to rejoice because Jesus and Jesus alone has the keys to the cemetery. Think about that for a moment. He has the keys to the cemetery. No one else does. In Revelation chapter 1 at verse 18, John said, and actually John was, was quoting here, Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am he that was dead and am alive. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And then he goes on to say, I have the keys to death and Hades. Jesus Christ has the keys to the cemetery. And so, to me, for those of us who are God's people, we ought to rejoice. Because one day Jesus is coming, and when He comes, He's going to bring our loved ones with Him. That's what He said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, He said, Brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others, which have no hope. We have hope. When we place a loved one in the grave, we have hope. Why? Because we know that that body will be resurrected from the dead. And also, we have the assurance that they've gone home to be with the Lord. That their spirit is resting in the bosom of Abraham, or in this place called paradise. It is a place of rest. In Revelation 14, verse 13, John said, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 23, he said, To depart and be with Christ is far better. So when Jesus comes, death will no longer be a thorn in the side of mankind. Go back and read sometime Genesis chapter 5. One of the things that's interesting in reading that chapter is over and over again, as it talks about the patriarchs who lived in days gone by, it always comes up with this statement, and he died. Only one person did not taste of death as recorded by Moses in Genesis chapter 5. That man was Enoch. 
And Enoch was translated, according to what Scripture teaches us. Elijah, another man who was translated. Everyone else has walked the corridors of death. And unless Jesus comes again, you and I will one day walk the corridors of death, whether we like it or not. It is a common foe to all people. So we think about this, this term, rejoice. Rejoice because Jesus has the keys to the cemetery. But then also, there's another term we need to see, and it's really, I think, reflected in verse 58. And that is the word readiness. We need to live in a state of readiness. Why? Because we do not know when Jesus is coming. We know He is coming. We just don't know when. And so because He's coming, as a thief in the night, we are encouraged to live how? Well, listen to what Paul said. Therefore, in light, of, in light of the resurrection, in light of what I've just said, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Two things here. Number one, we need to be steadfast in the Lord. Now, Paul said we need to be steadfast and we need to be immovable. How steadfast are you in your Christian faith? When it comes to living the Christian life, are you immovable? Or are you, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine? You know, some people are just gullible. And some people are not strong in the faith. They're not steadfast in the faith. And because of that, they are easy prey for the devil. Let me give you three suggestions that I believe will help all of us to be steadfast in the Lord. Number one, we need to be grounded in the Word of God. And I cannot stress this enough. We need to be grounded in the Word of God. And the only way that you and I can be grounded in the Word of God is to spend time in this book. You remember when the Hebrew writer wrote in chapter 5 of his book, he was writing to Christians, many of whom were either on the verge of going back to Judaism. Some may have already gone back into Judaism. And so in chapter 5, he said, When by reason of time you ought to be teachers, you have need that someone teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. We need to know, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to be immovable when it comes to the fundamentals of the faith of Almighty God. That would pertain to the church of Christ. It would relate to our worship to Almighty God. It would also encompass salvation in Christ. The importance of faithfulness to the Lord. Those are just a few of the things that relate to the fundamentals. But we have to be grounded in the Lord. And if you're not growing in the Lord, you're not grounded in the Lord. I can assure you that. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we have to be growing in the Lord if we're going to be grounded in the Lord. But then secondly, we have to be guided by the Lord. How are we going to be guided by the Lord? How are we going to be guided by the Lord Himself? Well, the only way to do that is to be guided by the Word of God. So number one, we have to be grounded in the Word of God. Number two, we have to be guided by the Word of God. Peter said that God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said, Every scripture inspired of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You and I today can know what we need to do as children of God by following this book. This is the safest guide that, that we have before us in terms of successful living. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. You can't get to heaven without this book. It is the only guide known to mankind. And so, we have to be grounded in the word of God. We have to be guided by the word of God. And then we have to be guarded by the word of God. And when I, when I talk about being guarded by the word of God, I mean taking this book, storing it up in our heart, so that we have a defense mechanism against temptation and sin. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word have I laid up in my heart that I might not sin against you. I referenced a moment ago Ephesians 4, verse 14, where Paul talked about those who were tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Jesus said in the long ago, Beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. And that's found in Matthew 7, verse 15. In 1 John chapter 4, John said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try, prove the spirits, whether they be of God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. If you're not, if you're not spending time in this book, if you're not immersing your life in the Word of God, then you do not have a formidable defense system against temptation. And ultimately, temptation will lead you to sin. And so that's why when we talk about being steadfast in the Lord, Paul said be steadfast, be immovable. You need to be grounded in the Word of God. You need to be guided by the Word of God and then guarded by the Word of God. That's the only way I know to be successful in the Christian life. And so first of all, we talk about steadfastness in the Lord. And then secondly, service in the Lord. Listen again to what Paul said. Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. I don't know who coined the phrase, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. One of the reasons people get in trouble in and out of the church is they don't have enough to do. Now, I don't know what you're doing for the cause of Christ, but here's my encouragement. Get busy in the work of the church. There's something for all of us to do. If you want to be steadfast in the faith, if you want to maintain your allegiance to God and have this immovable spirit, you need to be busy. If you're not busy in the kingdom of God, then you're open prey for the devil. Again, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. Those who are busy and productive in the kingdom of God don't have time for the world. Look at all look at look at people in the church that have gone back into the world. I would imagine that some people who have apostatized from the faith are people number 1 that never spent time in this book. If if you don't spend time in this book, you're not going to draw closer to God. James said, "Draw near to God, and the promise is he'll draw near to you." 
People that are not spending time in this book are slipping spiritually. And so, first of all, they're not spending time in the Word of God. And secondly, they're not, they're not working in the kingdom of God. We need people who are busy, productive, laboring for the cause of Christ. When, when people get out of service in the church, they, they become disconnected. The beauty of the work of the church is, and the beauty of the church is, it is one body, but it's composed of many members. And all of us as members are interconnected. We are interlinked. We need one another. And the church as a whole needs everyone. It needs 100% participation. The sad truth of the matter is, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. You ever thought about that? 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Some have said that 20% of the people do 80% of the giving. But the point is this. We need to be busy. We need to be laboring for the cause of Christ. Now, the Hebrew writer said that God is not unrighteous to forget our work and labor of love. The Lord will reward us for our service in His kingdom. Granted, we are still unprofitable servants, as Jesus said. But nonetheless, we need to be working in the kingdom of God. That's why Paul said, that's why he closed this chapter by saying, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. You know, when David died, and you can read about David about to depart this, this life, one of the things that he did, he called Solomon to the side, and tried to encourage him. He tried to talk straight to him. And I think about as parents. One of the things that, that we want to do is, is to talk straight to our children. And we want to see our children successful in this life. Not just physically. Not just materially. But most importantly, spiritually. Just imagine that you were, you were on your deathbed. What would you tell your children? What, what would your last words be to them? Let me tell you what I think we ought to say to our, to our children and loved ones. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abound in the work of the Lord. That is the formula for success in the kingdom of God. Jesus is coming again. When He comes, the resurrection is going to occur. We can take heart from that knowing that the Lord has not forgotten those who are in the cemetery. It may be that this earth will stand another thousand years. It may stand a million years. I do not know, but I know this. Once we step out into eternity, we go home to be with the Lord. And our body may disintegrate and turn back to the dust of the earth. But the same God who framed this world has the power to resurrect that body. And I believe that. Tonight it might be that you're here and you're not a Christian. What would you need to do? Well, the Bible says there's only one plan of salvation. There's only one man that can save, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you want to be saved, you have to be saved in Christ and through Christ. What would you need to do? Well, you have to believe that he's the Son of God, John 8, 24. And then you need to repent, to turn from a life of sin, just like Peter instructed on Pentecost Day in Acts 2.38.
when those who were cut to the heart cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent. And then he said, And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. When you're baptized into Christ, every sin washed away. And God will add you to the church, Acts 2.47. And the beauty of that is Christ is the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5, verse 23. You have to be in Christ to be saved. And if you're in Christ, you're in the church. You're in the church of Christ. And that's the only institution wherein God the Father saves. It's called the church of Christ. And then you have to live faithfully until death. And the promise is if you live faithfully until death, you will be awarded the crown of life. Maybe you're here tonight, you're not faithful. Could we pray with you and for you? James said, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.